Thank you, sir. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. A very warm welcome to all of you for this third R.K. Swami Memorial Lecture 2021 on the theme, Emerging Global Civilizational Paradigm and India. May I now request the dignitaries to take their place on the dais, please. Uh, Mr. C.V. Subbarao, uh, President uh, MMA. Mr. Srinivasan K. Swami, Chairman R.K. Swami and Hansa Chairman, Asian Federation and Advertising Associations. Mr. Shekhar Swami, Group Chief Executive Officer at R.K. Swami BBDO. Mr. N. Murali, Director, The Hindu Group. Mr. R.B. Rajan, former Chairman and MD, Anugra Madison. And of course, our guest of the day, Chief Guest, Mr. S. Gurumurthy, Editor Tughlaq, Corporate Advisor, Commentator and Economics, Finance and Politics. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome them with a round of applause. And I also welcome all the participants this evening who have joined us online, Facebook, YouTube, and all the social media platforms. Of uh, may I request uh, the dignitaries to place their, take their seat on the dais, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. C.V. Subarao is the president of uh, Madras Management Association, is currently the managing director of Sanmar Shipping Limited. Uh, may I request him uh, to deliver the welcome address this evening, please. Okay, Mr. Paul Anthony, uh, please take your time, please, on that, sir. Sorry for the, uh, missing you out. This is Mr. Paul Anthony is President, Advertising Club Chennai, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, let's welcome him with a round of applause as well. Thank you. Ladies and uh, gentlemen, uh, good evening. This is a tremendous evening. A memorial lecture as an endowment is something we do look forward to. It carries lessons. And I often quote Mark Twain, who said, I have focused more on learning in the process of education. It is indeed my privilege to welcome you all this evening at this very special event, the third R.K. Swami Memorial Lecture this evening. We are indeed privileged to institute and organize this annual memorial lecture in the name of late Sri R.K. Swami, the doyen of Indian advertising profession, to remind ourselves of his pioneering spirit and carry his legacy forward. It is indeed my honor to welcome Sri S. Gurumurthy, Editor, Tughlaq, Corporate Advisor, Commentator on Economics, Sri N. Morali, Director, The Hindu Group, Sri R.V. Rajan, Former Chairman and MD, Anurag Madison, Mr. Srinivasan K. Swami, Chairman, R.K. Swami Hansa, Chairman, Asian Federation of Advertising Associations and Past President, MMA, and the dignitaries on the dais. It is indeed a proud moment for the members of Madras Management Association who would, I'm sure, would recollect the enormous contribution of Mr. R.K. Swami in the progress and growth of MMA to what it is today, particularly his active involvement, guidance, and support during his tenure 
as the president of MMA from 1972 to 1974. The MMA today has transformed itself into the largest management association in the country, which has been bestowed the honor of the best management association in India for the last 12 years in a row. A great deal of this achievement is attributable to the vision, thought, and initiatives, and the many luminaries among whom Mr. R.K. Swami was the foremost. I must place on record the Secretariat's wonderful contribution all these years led by Group Captain Vijay Kumar and all his associates. <laughs> MMA with a membership base of over 8,000 members spread across corporate houses, individuals, academicians, and students conducts more than 750 programs annually. All this would not have been possible without the constant guidance and support of our past presidents, including Mr. Srinivasan K. Swami, who played a very important role in the establishment of the MMA Management Center. I do take this opportunity, and I sh should not miss welcoming the past presidents of MMA, many of them who are here today, my colleagues from the Managing Committee, members of MMA, distinguished invitees and guests who are present here this evening, and a large number of them watching this program live through the social media portals, the one boon that the COVID-19 has presented. Today's endowment lecture is on the theme, Emerging Global Civilization Paradigm in India, which we all believe is very vital in this fast-paced geopolitical environment in view of the immediate neighborhood. I mean, you can change your neighbors if you're in an apartment, but it's hardly possible if you're a nation. I'm sure the distinguished speakers this evening would enlighten us as we dwell on the perspectives of the civilization and its paradigms. I'm glad that this annual endowment lecture in memory of Mr. R.K. Swami has evolved into a great knowledge-sharing platform, taking his legacy to the next generation of management professionals. With the permission of the House, I would like to offer a thought, without any bias, uh, setting, if at all, if such a context is ever set in discussing cultures and civilizations. In his book, The Clash of Civilizations and Remaking a World Order, Samuel Huntington says, God and Caesar, church and state, spiritual authority and temporal authority have been a prevailing dualism in Western culture. Only in Hindu civilization were religion and politics also were so distinctly separated. In Islam, God is Caesar. In China and Japan, Caesar is God. In orthodoxy, God is Caesar's junior partner. This is the setting that I wonder which will create our context today. I leave you with a quote. Our earth is degenerate in these latter days. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey, obey their parents, and the end of the world is evidently approaching. This was written in an Assyrian clay tablet 4,800 years ago. So we can safely say that nothing much has changed, if at all you are calling it change. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, sir, for setting the context this evening. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Shekhar Swami is the group chief executive officer at RK Swami BBDO. It is my pleasure inviting him to make the introductory remarks 
this evening and also introduce the speakers and take the proceedings further. Mask can come off, as they say. So, Mr. Subarao, good evening. And uh, the friends in the dais, all of you, good evening. It's really nice to be here. I was here two years ago. I missed last year because of COVID. Uh, Gurmurti, sir, namaskaram. Murli, sir, namaskaram. Mr. Rajan, sir, namaskaram. Namaskaram to all of you. We are in Chennai, after all. Uh, it's a nice ring to it, the word Namaskaram. Uh, it's fantastic to be here, actually. That we are here together is an indication of normalcy, isn't it? And let's all hope and pray that it stays normal. Everyone keeps talking of a new normal, and frankly, I am too old to learn about, and I don't care for any new normal. So let's say that we will all be in a normal state, as only a normal state can be. Now there is a reason why I'm standing here on this stage to make the introductions. And this is personal, revealing some family dynamics. I revealed some two years ago, I'll reveal some today. This is actually a happy week in the R.K. Swami family. Uh, Sundar's son is getting married. I'll call him out, except that he will kill me, so I won't call him out. It's a small wedding to be held in Bangalore. So Sundar said to me, Ni in the introduction of Patugo, Enak pack ponano. Quoting verbatim, pack That's how it works in the family. Pass on tasks under any excuse. Right? Of course, I don't want the father of the groom, which he is, to show up in Bangalore without his Pattuveshti for the wedding. Okay, I'm imagining all kinds of things when this request is made to me, right? So he will show up, he'll not have packed properly. Then Sudha, my uh, my sister-in-law will get after me. She'll blame me, saying, you didn't do that introduction. Therefore, he didn't pack his Vatuveshti. So it leads to a lot of complications in life. So I said immediately, I said, no, I'll do the introduction. So that's why I'm here. I hope the Vatuveshti is packed properly. By the way, he was not packing this afternoon. I must tell you that also. <laughs> so I don't know. I still run a great risk. Uh, but seriously, folks, uh, we have a great evening. Coming up, we have three speakers on the dais. Important thing is all three knew Mr. R.K. Swami personally. They knew him well, and that makes this a personal event. Uh, I will introduce the first two speakers now together, and then come back to make the third introduction. Uh, Mr. Murli, you are going first. So I will introduce you, Mr. Murli, his family is first of the Hindu family, and that needs no introduction. He has played many a leading role in the world of media. Over a career spanning, I'm guessing, four plus decades. I won't go to a higher number. 
No, sir. I, I, I am very muted in my comments. He has been a stalwart of the Indian Newspaper Society and dealt with Mr. R.K. Swami as a member of the advertising agency's uh, fraternity. Uh, they sat across the table on many occasions. Sometimes maybe there was a run-in. It's all for good. Uh, he has seen the world of publishing firsthand and deeply. We know that. It is, to safe, it is safe to say that he knows more than a thing or two about this and will share his insight on the business and the man. So he will come up uh, shortly. The second speaker is Mr. R.V. Rajan. He spent a career building an advertising agency called Anugraha. His noteworthy accomplishment, he just told me that he spent 27 years in, in Mumbai. I didn't know that, so that, is, that makes him my comrade. Uh, but his greatest accomplishment is that he came to understand rural markets deeply. People are still talking about rural markets. This man was way ahead of his time. Uh, he, he specialized in rural marketing. He was a recognized leader with many clients looking to him for sagely advice. Now, that's a big deal in our business. He's an original in this field, and he knew Mr. R.K. Swami well. I'll stop here. I'll request Mr. Murli to speak first, then Mr. Rajan, and then I'll come back and introduce the third speaker. Mr. Murli. Good evening. Mr. Gurmurthy, the chief guest and the keynote speaker of the day, and my very good friend, Shaker and Sundar Swami. Since Shaker spoke and you didn't speak, so I'm addressing him first. <laughs> Mr. Subarao, the president of the MMA, Paul Antony, and my very good friend, R.V. Rajan, uh, members of uh, Mr. R.K. Swami's family, members of MMA. It is indeed my honor and pleasure to be part of this meeting, particularly a physical meeting after uh, two years, to a meeting where uh, the third R.K. Swami Memorial Lecture is going to be delivered by none other than Sri Gurmurti, who is like Mr. R.K. Swami, wears many hats. In fact, uh, of course, he needs no introduction, but when I saw the, read the subject, uh, Emerging Global Civilizational Paradigm and India, it was intriguing to me. So, let's see uh, what he comes up with, because he has a very, very keen mind and uh, is a thinker. Uh, apart from being a journalist, ideologue, uh, chartered accountant, like some of us, and uh, many other uh, roles. Uh, we are gathered here, uh, at least I am, I have been asked to talk from the print industry perspective of an unusual and extraordinary advertising professional, or should I say, unusual and extraordinary human being itself. Uh, Mr. R.K. Swami's journey has been one of uh, inspiration and awe to whoever came into contact with him. 
In fact, uh, it's even more interesting to know that uh, though he was self-taught, he came from a humble beginning, his entry into advertising was really happenstance. Uh, he, because of family circumstances, the family went to uh, Mumbai or Bombay as it was called in the early 40s. Uh, he went to a neighborhood school where he learned, uh, where Gujarati was the primary language. Imagine somebody from Chennai, an orthodox uh, South Indian family, going to uh, Mumbai and learning Gujarati. But Gujarati language it was, which really brought him into advertising in a sense. So, it, it has proved transformational for Mr. R.K. Swami. Uh, when he was in search of a job, he uh, was first appointed as a translator in the, in the India's premier advertising agency then, probably the only uh, agency of consequence then, uh, J. Walter Thompson, or which later on became HTA Hindustan Thompson. And because of his diligence, hard work, and willingness to learn things other than or the whole gamut of issues, he impressed uh, the legend, advertising legend of those times, Fielden, who was in charge of uh, uh, J. Walter Thompson. And the rest, they say, is history. He rose through the ranks, earned the spears, uh, spurs, and uh, was in Walter Thompson till 1973, when at the age of 50, he had the courage to embark on his own and start an advertising agency. Who at that age would have the courage to do so in this day and age? Because now 50 is almost retirement age, uh, the new normal, let me say. Uh, it was uh, amazing. Uh, it was 1973. Uh, in those days, advertising agencies, a barrier, so to say, or entry barrier was one thing, but also that gave them a passport to various privileges. The Indian Newspaper Society, the apex body of newspapers, accredited advertising agencies so that the agencies which are accredited will get the facility of credit will and uh, a, a, a commission of 15%, which is a ransom in these days. Uh, so there it was. Uh, in, normally, uh, Indian Newspaper Society, of which I've been a part for a long time earlier, is very tough in giving accreditation and doesn't straight away accredit any agency. First, they put the agency on probation, so to speak, by giving provisional accreditation, and then if it's satisfied, the full accreditation. But here, there was an exception made in Swami's case because he was an exceptional individual professional. And every, the INS knew the office had trust and faith in his integrity and his commitment to the business, and therefore, without batting an eyelid, he was given accreditation straight away, and from then on, R.K. Swami Advertising 
Associates has grown to become one of the leading advertising agencies in the country. Uh, coming to Mr. R.K. Swami, uh, as, as an advertising professional, in fact, everybody who has worked with him say that he is the ultimate client service person. And R.K. Swami, by dint of his commitment, fierce dedication, courage of conviction, and above all, risk-taking ability, I think uh, built the agency to where it was. Uh, he belonged to a generation of uh, stalwarts of advertising, like uh, some of his contemporaries were Subhash Goshal, Mani S.R. Iyer, Subrata Sen Gupta, Ahmed Ibrahim, Bobby Sista, and many others, who not only built a solid foundation for advertising in the country, but saw its evolution and growth into what it is today. Or uh, let me come to what it is today at the end. But uh, so, uh, Mr. R.K. Swami from the South was the sole representative of the South in that. When, when Mumbai was the epicenter of advertising, Mr. R.K. Swami could easily uh, take them on his own terms. Uh, and he had the, the knowledge, the wisdom and the, and the sagacity and vision to do that. He was an, was an inspirational leader. Uh, and uh, a person like him, in fact, uh, it's very interesting. I was struck by Mani Ayas or SRIS quote saying that uh, Ogilvy, the original legend of advertising and one of the all-time advertising greats, was visiting India, I think, in the early 80s. So after meeting with Mr. Swami, he told Mr. Maniyayar that advertising is too small a canvas for this man. Of course, we have seen how uh, advertising it was indeed a small canvas for him, and therefore uh, he broke out of that canvas and extended his wings uh, to many other areas. Uh, Mr. Swami's interest uh, spanned many worlds, not just advertising. He was as committed and he seamlessly bestrode those worlds, varying worlds like philosophy, religion, building temples, education, and charitable causes uh, without neglecting his passion and his uh, profession of advertising. Uh, my association, or I have had interesting apart from association, interesting interactions with Mr. Swami at an industry level. Because uh, he was the president of the Advertising Agencies Association of India, the three years of I, uh, in 82, 83, and I think 83, 84 also. And it was a coincidence, and my good fortune that I happened to be the president of the Indian Newspaper Society, the newspaper industry apex body, around the same time in 83. 
So we have had uh, the relationship between these two institutions is not is unlike what it is today. Today or in subsequent years, the relationship became very cordial and uh, almost bordering on coziness. But during those times, the both the institutions took organizations took adversarial positions on many issues because there were several uh, thorny issues that would emerge from time to time and the relationship uh, i would say frankly was quite testy uh, in and it was during this time that uh, we had discussions with three a's of i representatives on various uh, issues for instance uh, I was referring to accreditation of advertising agencies by the Indian Newspaper Society. They enjoyed a credit of 90 days by virtue of this accreditation and newspapers, member newspapers were duty bound to give that credit. And then the INS more or less guaranteed, in a sense guaranteed payment or undertook the responsibility of collecting all the payments. Also, the, new, uh, the newspapers did not deal with the advertisers directly in terms of uh, billing and so on. Though they would go to the advertisers for getting ads, the, uh, the relationship between the agency and the newspaper was principle to principle. And then there was the issue of uh, if there is a default by a client, uh, who is responsible? As far as we are concerned, it was very clear, agency, because it is the principle. So some of these thorny issues would come up from time to time. The INS wanted to reduce the credit period uh, from the now unacceptable limit of 90 days to something like 45 days. Uh, but uh, it was very, very tough going for uh, the INS representatives. Uh, while. INS was able to convince most of Mr. Swami's colleagues, more often than not, to its point of view and its positions, Mr. R.K. Swami was a hard nut to crack. He was always meticulous and thorough in his presentations, in his discussions, and came armed with a mass of data and information that uh, was sometimes persuasive, we were always we always had a healthy respect for him and sometimes were even in awe of him but uh, what happened also was he very often or on these issues took a rigid stand or inflexible stand uh, because he really uh, believed in what uh, the association's views were or stand was so Though some of us would come away exasperated or sometimes irritated by his stubbornness, finally we all came back with the impression that, and we are convinced that he had no malice or rancor towards anybody. He thought what he was doing was, the, was his duty by the association and what he believed in. And uh, so it went on. So. Uh, actually, both sides enjoyed these sparring sessions. Of course, finally settlement was reached and uh, uh, via media was found and happily thereafter uh, these associations became very, very cordial 
some of those uh, uh, aggressive arguments and all that are, are a thing of the past. So that is be behind us. Uh, Mr. R.K. Swami's greatest contribution to advertising, I would say, is his path-breaking initiative or uh, accomplishment in pioneering public sector advertising. During those days when uh, the state-owned enterprises occupied the commanding heights of the economy, so to say, uh, and were so bureaucratically minded and so rule-bound that advertising, concepts like advertising were alien, were alien to them. They even felt advertising was a wasteful expenditure. But it was Mr. R.K. Swami who first shattered that mindset and uh, the rest, they, we, as they say, is history because we see public sector advertising in a very big way now. Uh, he had a lot of public sector clients initially and he is the one who uh, made them advertise and for that uh, the media also is ever grateful to him. Uh, the other thing I would like to say is uh, Mr. R.K. Swami, uh, as I said, his interest straddled various areas, but he seamlessly dealt with them and his vision was extraordinary, his depth of knowledge and he had a, an impact with whoever he came in touch with. Uh, for all this, he, had a, he was a large personality, he had a larger heart and he was very generous. Uh, so, uh, when Mr. R.K. Swami passed away in uh, 2003, June, it was like an end of an era in advertising. And but his legacy still lives on. Uh, his legacy through this uh, advertising agency, R.K. Swami Advertising Associates, and is very uh, well carried forward by his two sons, uh, Shekhar Swami and Sundar Swami, I must say is more than a chip of the old block. Because uh, Mr. when Mr. R.K. Swami, uh, I said he was interested in industry bodies, Naturally, he became, uh, took leadership positions in all of them. Uh, for instance, Advertising Agencies Association of India, uh, then uh, Audit Bureau of Circulations, which is a tripartite body of uh, agencies, uh, media, print media and uh, uh, advertising agencies. He, his interest went beyond uh, just advertising because he was interested in management also. And he was the president of this uh, the MMA, which is uh, happily hosting this uh, event, uh, and he, we heard how uh, he helped build up this uh, institution, and Sundar even uh, improved upon it. So when I say is more, Sundar is more than a chip of the old block, uh, he not only became the president of these associations that Mr. Swami was, but uh, and. Uh, uh, Mr. Swami was also the president of All India Management Association. All India Management Association, yes. Sundar became president of all these associations. Plus, he had ambitions to go globally also. So, in that sense, he was much more than a chip of the old block because uh, he became the first Indian to head the international advertising agencies association, and. 
is now the president of Asian Federation of Advertising Agencies, uh, and I, which he recently took over, and I offer my warm, warm greetings for that. Uh, that therefore, uh, R.K. Swami's uh, memories live on, and legends like him, they, through their values, through their knowledge, to their, through their meticulousness, to their courage of conviction, through their tenacity of purpose, to their caring nature, are, have, are an inspiration not only to aspiring young advertising professionals, but to other or to everybody, I would say. Finally, I would end by saying, I, will try, I would like to uh, imagine, I'm tempted to imagine what would R.K. Swami's reaction be if we, if we were to confront the present situation that the state of the advertising industry and media industry is placed. Uh, the media, advertising industry is a totally different world from what Mr. R.K. Swami believed in. He believed in a full service agency of his time. Now, the process of unbundling of agencies has happened from the late 90s or 1998-99 through these 20 years and now it has become fragmented or uh, let's say beyond recognition. There are uh, specialist agencies, uh, there are media agencies, creative hot shops or creative boutiques, there are brand uh, building experts, digital speciality uh, specialists and so on. Uh, the whole ecosystem of advertising and media and the structure has changed. Uh, if I ask myself how would Mr. R.K. Swami respond to it, I would definitely say he would be aghast at what has happened. Because it has been a disruption of no small order. It's been a huge disruption. Disruption not of the structure, of only the structure, but disruption of the business model itself. For in instance, uh, during his time, 15% commission was the norm. Today, I don't know uh, what the commission is because we can't even speak. And media agencies have taken center stage because of their clout with, uh, with their clients and also with negotiating with the media. They have squeezed or put pressure on media rates also. And, uh, it is a double whammy because uh, media agencies have affected, of course, they have grown. They have affected both uh, the other arms of the advertising agency's business, plus also the media in, 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 as a consequence because media's uh, margin has also gone down uh, substantially. So maybe Mr. R.K. Swami would say, I've had, I've enjoyed uh, those glorious days. Uh, it is time for me to move on to my other passions at which he was equally adept. And uh, I will leave all of you with that thought because he is one who could, uh, uh, who, on any subject, as I said, 
seamlessly move with authority and he had accomplishments in, in those areas as well. And I once again thank uh, the MMA, the uh, Madras Advertising Club and above all the family of Mr. R.K. Swami, Sundar and Shekhar Swami. It was Sundar Swami who, uh, who asked me to talk and I find that very, very difficult to say no to him but uh, I've done it on many occasions. But this is one occasion where I, had, I was very, very glad to come and uh, share, uh, talk about Mr. R.K. Swami in whatever, though I was a generation uh, apart from him. Thank you very much. Friends, it feels a bit strange to come onto the stage for a physical meeting after almost three years. Thank you, MMA. Thank you, Sundar, for giving me this opportunity to recall my association with Mr. R.K. Swami on the occasion of the third R.K. Swami Memorial Lecture. Mr. Swami was rightly considered the Bhishma Pitamaha of advertising during his very lifetime for immense, contribu for immense contribution to the advertising profession. Though I had heard about Swami, Mr. Swami, when I was in Bombay, I was in Bombay and Delhi before coming to Chennai, and how he had built JW to be a top agency in South India and pioneered public sector advertising, I got to know more about him only after I moved to Chennai in 1974, by which time, of course, he had quit JWT to start his own agency, R.K. Swami. I did not have the pleasure of working with Mr. Swami closely. However, I was his great admirer, trying to study his life and understanding the secrets of his success as an ad professional. I did get to know him a little closely when I had the privilege of meeting him, seeking his advice and help regarding the activities of Advertising Club Madras, which is one of the co-sponsors of this event, of which he was one of the founders, incidentally. During my tenure as the president of the Advertising Club between 1993-95, I was also a member of the Advertising Executive Committee of the Advertising Agencies Association of India. You know, those days, a lot of anti-South feeling. Bombay thought they are the biscuits. Anybody beyond India, we don't know anything about advertising. That's the feeling that I had. In fact, Mr. Swami had to fight his way through this maze and the same thing happened to Sundar also. I was shocked to find that Mr. Swami had not been conferred the Lifetime Achievement Award by the association, though he deserved it more than others who were being recognized at that point of time. My several recommendations to the committee as a regional convener were ignored. So it was my privilege to persuade my executive committee of the Ad Club to institute the Distinguished Service Award and of the Ad Club Madras and first ever award was presented to Mr. Swami at a glittering function held in 1994. Mr. A.M.M. Arunachalam of the TIA group was the chief guest. And Mr. Swami, I remember, was insistent that 
until Mr. Arunachalam is free, I won't, don't want to have the function. We delayed the function by a couple of months because he was insistent on getting Mr. Arunachalam because it seems it's Mr. Arunachalam who gave him a big break in his career as an advertising man. Well, though Ms. Swami subsequently received many other prestigious awards, industry awards, including one from three years of I, I understand from his sons that he valued the Atlas Madras Award the most, and I'm happy that I had a small role to play in that. Of course, the next award was received by Mr. Murli, the another deserving person who has also been a great supporter of the Art Club Madras. Though Art Club Madras had started conducting a short-term introductory course in advertising along with MMA, another connection I have with MMA is the very first office that you people started was the Roundtable House, which I had the privilege of being associated as the Roundtable Foundation Secretary. And I was a signatory from the Roundtable Foundation and Wing Commander Ramadurai was signatory. And the first ever advertising, part-time advertising course was started by MMA in association with Atla Madras when Sundar was the president of the club. So that is another connection we have. Now, though Sundar was the first person to start the course, it was during my time as a president, the permanent secretary was established and we started a full-fledged one-year course in advertising, PG diploma course in advertising. When approached, Mr. R.K. Swami spontaneously agreed to donate rupees 300,000, 3 lakhs of rupees, a big sum those days, in creating the infrastructure for the office. Even today, a big portrait, portrait of Mr. Swami adorns the wall of the boardroom of the club, the well-appointed boardroom of the club. At a personal level, I remember that whenever we met, Mr. Swami was very cordial to me, extremely nice to me. I felt he was genuinely fond of me, reflected the fact that he accompanied by Mrs. Swami, attended the weddings of my two daughters, and also my Sashti of the Purti in 2002, and blessed my family. Now you know my age. It is heartening to see that his children, particularly Sundar Swami and uh, Shekhar Swami, have proved to be chips of the old block. Of course, Sundar Swami has gone one step ahead. He reached greater heights than his father devoting a lot of time to activities of international advertising and winning many accolades for his service to the industry. I am happy to say that he also received the Distinguished Service Award from the Act Club Madras a couple of years ago. I am sure Ms. Swami would have been proud to witness the, that his children have taken his legacy forward to great heights. I would like to conclude this brief presentation listing a few lessons that I learned from Ms. Swami's life which has stood me in good stead as an ad professional. Take every challenge as an opportunity. Be meticulous in whatever you do. Do adequate research before making any recommendations to clients. Clients are your gods. Never take anything lying down. He was a fighter. Unfortunately, I was never a fighter. I couldn't do that. That's not in my nature. And most important, that age is no barrier for dreaming. Remember, he started his agency at the age of 51, as Mr. Murli said, and built R.K. Swami into one of the top 10 agencies in the country. So I thank Sundar and MMA for giving me this opportunity to go down memory lane and recall my association with the great man who left an indelible mark not only in the world of advertising, but also touched the lives of many people who had the opportunity to work with him. Thank you all.
So I'm back again. Uh, this time to introduce uh, Mr. Gurumurthy. I uh, am not sure that an introduction to Gurumurthy in the city of uh, Chennai is necessary. But they've given me the task. Now I know why Sundar said me introduce Panidur. So my introduction is actually going to be a lot of pauses, if you will. Uh, Mr. Gurumurthy is many things. He's editor of Tuklak now. Everybody knows that. From being an exceptional chartered accountant to an editor of a publication, you can figure out that journey. He's an intellectual. Yes, we know that intellectual. You can figure out that journey. He is a legal advisor, but to the best of my knowledge, I don't think he went to law school. So he might have taught, well, he would have gone to law schools to teach. That he would have done. That means he's self-taught, which makes him 10 times sharper. You can figure out that journey. He's a journalist. Again, I don't think he attended a single class on journalism. Again, he might have gone to teach in journalism schools. Except he cut his teeth in the Ramnath Goenka home of journalism, advising that fiery newspaper baron. You can figure out that journey. He is tireless. I can vouch for it. He takes up causes. He fights. One would say he is ready any time to fight for what he believes in. The question is, where does he find the time? You can figure out how he does that. Guru is an academician. But he is not an academic who went to, you know, who said, I'm going to pursue a career in academics and get a PhD and therefore I'll be in academics. I don't think he did that, but he's an academician. That he is a teacher is beyond doubt. He's a professor of legal anthropology. One of these days, I will bug you to tell me what that means in Shastra University. Uh, frankly, I, it sounds to me like something he has uh, created. So you can figure that out as well. That he is vice chairman of Vivekananda International Foundation, a strategic think tank. Well, the doc. Okay, so he's uh, sorry. Cut the vice. He's no vice. <laughs> he is. He's chairman of the Vivekananda International Foundation, a strategic think tank. That that he is now chairman actually should be no surprise. Uh, that he thinks and breathes strategy across a broad spectrum of issues is something that I can personally vouch for. How did this humble lad from the deep south of India get to a position where he is consulted by all sorts of businesses and political leaders in the country on strategy? You can figure out that journey. The topic for today is Emerging Global Civilizational Paradigm and India. 
emerging global civilization, civilizational paradigm and India. It is a rich one. It requires a sweeping understanding and perspective across the world. It requires a sweeping understanding and perspective across India. It requires a mind that is intellectual, a spiritual intellectual, an editor, a lawyer, an investigative journalist, an academic, a strategist, and a contrarian. Frankly, the topic needs a Gurumurti to unravel it for us. And I will add one more thing that is more important than this, uh, you know, all these descriptions I just gave, they're all mind-related descriptions. Yeah, mental, this, intellectual, that, all relating to the mind. Frankly, that's uh, a very small part of the character. I've had a few occasions to work closely with Guru on projects of national importance. We came together voluntarily. And my observation is this, Guru's heart beats for India. He feels deeply for the country. His heart is not only always in the right place, his heart feels deeply and beats hard to ensure the economic progress and welfare of the people of this bewitching land, to preserve and protect our ancient culture and values and way of life, and for this country to claim its rightful place as not just a world leader, but as the world leader. Guru sir, stage is all yours. Namaskarams to all on the dais and this audience which has assembled despite all the problems of physical attendance. I must really thank all of you because that's one of the reasons that is going to encourage me to talk because if the hall is half empty, you can understand how discouraged I will feel. It is the audience which raises the stature of the speaker actually. So. When I think of R.K. Swami, my mind goes back to when I was very young, 29, 30. I see Mr. S.V.S. Raghavan sitting here. I cannot see these two people separate. They were actually like twins. The kind of guidance I have received from these two people, two great men, in diverse aspects of life, some of which were discussed here, uh, particularly by Shekhar. I owe a lot to people who, without their knowing, I have stolen knowledge from them, experience from them. The whole society is open at university, provided you are willing to learn. We confine learning to schools, colleges, books, <laughs> universities. I think that is a very... Uh, compressed and narrow way of understanding the kind of things that S.V.S. Raghavan, who is sitting here, has taught me. 
i don't think anyone else would have received that kind of uh, uh, free easy friendly affectionate instruction in life this our society grew so when I, i i wanted to relate a few instances about swami but i feel that i will be borrowing uh, time from my difficult subject in fact uh, as soon as i entered here murli asked me murli told me it is an intriguing subject so i can understand the state of mind of the audience so this subject itself is intriguing i don't think there is any great discourse taking place in india about what i am thinking of talking to you so my job is not only going to be difficult it is going to be most difficult but why did i choose this topic i chose this topic primarily because of rk swami because swami was a man deeply involved in the civilizational dimensions of india so when i thought of this when i thought of uh, addressing or i was invited to address my mind immediately got fixed to this because this is a subject in which i have been working on for the last 3 decades and more particularly in the last 4 5 years and so this clicked another reason is see there is so much of uh, what i would say confusion if not if not absence of information or if i can put it arrogantly knowledge i had a about a month back maybe 3 weeks back i was addressing a very chosen strategic community people in delhi about the strategic defense and war models of india if they had absolutely no idea about what the indian war models were laws were and they were among the top people we have heard in mahabharata that after the war was over after the days war was over the pandavas and kauravas will sit together and have a drink and they used to talk as if nothing had taken place that they are going to hit each other tomorrow this was not there in the mind so we all thought it is something you know she's a poet's imagination but i had done a lot of research in this in fact v r ramchandra dikshitar was one of the finest minds which wrote a very very powerful treatise on hindu rules of war where he said ashoka's kalinga war was an adharmic war because he hit a weaker enemy without giving notice our war model was different and i studied the entire thing through the history of dharma shastras 11 volumes of great profound knowledge which was brought out by bandarkar institute you may be surprised to know the government of india funded it at a time when the government of india had some inclination for civilizational understanding of the country and when i read this i was stunned by the noble rules of war which our people had instituted and how it was being followed right down to our pallavas our cholas our cheras it is not 900 years ago 600 years ago 
800 years ago then i did a study i mean why i am saying this is this is the reason why i am talking to you i am speaking to these strategic thinking people i told them that in the 16th and 17th centuries in kerala the zomri kings had wars with uh, the portuguese and what the zomri kings told the portuguese as to how they would wage, wage the war it was brought out by whiteway an english scholar as to what was the noble rules of war which we had instituted he said no no we don't wage war where people are involved agriculture should not be affected people's life should not be affected there is a playground outside and on both sides of the huge ground there is lake there is you know you can perch your army there you can uh, use your uh, we can both of us can be on the other side we will beat the drum to say we are ready for war then if you beat the drum only we will start the war whatever in his work rise of portuguese power in india gives the following account of the war war had become a game governed by series of elaborate rules and to break one of these rules involved was dishonor which was worse than death this is 17th century whatever has there was neither night fighting nor ambuscades there should be no surprise attack on the enemy this is one of the rules of war in the entire mahabharata war it is in the 18th about 18 days only one night fighting was allowed otherwise it is only day war all fighting was done in daytime when sanhal verlesen opposing camps were either pitched near each other and both sides slept securely at sunrise soldiers of both armies mingled at the tank put their put on their armor ate their rice chewed their betel gossip chatted together at the beat of the drum either side drew apart and formed ranks it was incredible it it was a credible to be first to beat the drum and not no attack was allowed until the other side has beaten the drum the fighting was always in the open plain when i mentioned this to the strategic thinkers and i said it was only in 1905 at the hague the international con- meeting was held to say we should first distinguish between who are combatants and non combatants they were eating everybody and we had elaborate rules of war if somebody dropped the weapon he should not be considered a fighter a wounded man is a patient and i mentioned this is sir we just don't know anything because we go and listen to these international people t- saying it is they who brought the noble rules of war if you read the encyclopedia britannica it will say all ancient wars are barbaric no indian stood up to say this is the kind of war which we had for thousands of years and it was followed right down to 17th century you can understand the civilizational poverty in india so when i when i spoke to them and they didn't understand that is one of the reasons i felt i should talk about this in a wider context it's not an easy job but i would try and see how it is not something which i am going to talk about what happened 5000 years ago i am going to talk about how the world is now turning 
without the indian discourse being unaware indian intellectuals being in their own world how the world is turning and what we should be doing is something which i would like to share with you today i told you the link between rk swami me and this topic in the context of what i experienced with the strategic minds of india which are supposed to be among the top minds dealing with the world and talking about india to the world and they don't know about india it is in this background i will be trying to present my thoughts about how the world is now moving towards a civilizational paradigm which indian intellectuals are not aware you see today's topic calls calls for a helicopter view silo free view you can't be talking in silos you can't say this is politics this is geopolitics this is economic this is trade this is military you got to put together everything and see where we are where the world is where our studies are where our intellectuals are where our media is this is what i am going to present to you today there is near consensus why near consensus there is near unanimity that the post covid world order will change forever the man who who structured the post cold war order kissinger he wrote a 600 word article in which he mentioned only one sentence that the post covid world order will change forever he didn't say elaborate what it is we know from what the order will change into what it will change no one knows what is likely to be the change who are going to be the actors who are the actors earlier and what is their position today all this will figure in my presentation see the most important aspect of the post covid world order which has been visible in the last decade or so is the rise of china the rise of china has stunned the west it need not have stunned them at all because deng xiaoping told long ago let us hide our strength and bide our time 30 years ago is it right the west which has such strategic think tanks and great minds and all kinds of spying institutions prying into every country's deep thinking mechanism did they not know china is has been told by deng that this is what you should do in one sentence the entire american system has been bribed by china that is the brookings institution has brought out a paper that how no american think tank is today free of they use the word influence and in some places they also use the word stronger than influence you know the world bank ranking of businesses ease of doing businesses it has been admitted by world bank that china bribed them it's an open admission 
in fact when i was talking to one of the top persons in india was a policy maker he said china has now come to the conclusion that the american system will not work for america it will work for china you must understand how the world is moving and what are the turns which are taking place we have a rising china and a fatigued west this is a paradox the whole picture has changed in the last decade it is the most debated issue china's rise is the most debated issue it has been debated for the last 5 6 years it is even more fiercely debated but without any answer i don't think anyone has any answer so bad the situation was that after it is not it's not in trump's time it is after trump got elected uh, after biden got elected the european union entered into a comprehensive agreement on investment with china it was a slap on america everybody thought if european union and america come together america is over this was october it was december all the countries signed in january something dramatic happens they raised the issue of human rights in february in april the european union parliament says put a stop on this agreement an agreement in which xi jinping has put his entire political might he had opened the entire chinese market for european products the most important beneficiary was going to be germany and that lady was driving this whole process and everybody thought america's space has shrunk but in one turn the whole thing stopped the cia collapsed this was in april in june three important summits took place which completely turned the situation against china one was the g7 meeting second was the nato meeting third was the eu meeting it all happened in 3 days i don't know how many i i have not seen great reports in india about this g7 first said it is a systemic problem china is a systemic problem next day nato meeting said china is a systemic adversary last year in 2020 Emmanuel Macron would not admit one word against China in the NATO meeting. In 12 months everything changed. And then European Union endorsed the fact that the CAI won't be implemented. Don't think pure economic forces are working here. Deeper than economic forces are working. You know it is only the anglo saxon countries which first declared that they would not use the chinese 5g technology and everything was centered around australia england america and canada and everyone else had to fall in line so the world is being shaped by a group of nations 
which feel threatened not just economically politically militarily they feel threatened civilizationally this is important which i will make good as i am going to make the further presentation so everything changed in a matter of 4 months and that is not even discussed in india who did this how did this mechanism who just invented this great idea of human rights in sinkyang it has been happening for the last 20 years they have been shooting killing people suddenly and you know you put sanctions on the chinese and the chinese so confident that they had conquered european union they put sanctions on the european union parliament members and the green party president of germany which was their greatest supporter so you can understand how arrogance leads to actions which it is difficult to recall china's mistake if cai had succeeded i can tell you there is no way america could have countered china now this is one aspect the other aspect is where if you have to decouple from china it is going to be as difficult as china decoupling from you it's not easy because you are also it, it is like you know uh, a huge operation needed to separate the two entangled bodies now what to do the only way is to look at india i'll tell you what dramatic changes are taking place about the very paradigm of of how we they used to look at supply chain they used to look at cheap supply chain now they are looking at safe supply chain there's a paradigm shift and i will quote a few instances as to how all this started geopolitically autocratic china was seen as stable and safe supply chain for 28 years democratic india was seen as unstable and unsafe but this has changed after covid this is the most important thing it is the post covid politics where the role of china and america are both suspect in producing covid america funded the production of covid infection this is the thing which america cannot accept but this is a fact in september 2020 dru advising study showed that india would benefit to the extent of 70% of businesses shifting from china in january 2021 ubs evidence lab cfo study reported 70% of china based cfos and 86% of us based cfos say that they would be shifting part of their businesses from china the study further revealed that almost from zero india should reach 20 to 30% of the global supply chain within 2 to 3 years which matches with our medium term outlook in this country in march 2021 bloomberg said us president biden calling for a china free supply chain and a quad membership and india would be well positioned to absorb the supply chain shifts taking place due to washington strategic decoupling from china it mentioned that while amazon samsung apple are already in india everybody spoken to seems to be keen to move out of china in april 2000 uh, april last supply chain management review said it was that 
as us seeks to counter a rising china no nation is more important than india with its vast size abundant skilled technical professionals with strong political and cultural ties with the united states now you can understand why china is after india and in april again supply chain dive magazine reported according to q2 barometer reported by kuna provider of supply chain compliance solutions us and global players view vietnam and india as alternative sources and listed both countries among the top buying destinations and roughly a third of the global buyers and 38% of us buyers named vietnam and an influx of us based buyers increased inspection and audit demand in india 72% on year on year basis in may 2021 global global trade review reported that india japan and australia trade ministers met digitally important point formed a supply chain resilience initiative to squeeze china out of the critical technology supply chains like semiconductors batteries and rares you know india is entering a strategic investment agreement and technology agreement with taiwan which is the leading semiconductor production country in the world this is the shift that is taking place you may say it is trade economics but there is a background in that background where the west stands where we stand where china stands where the rest of the world stands we have to understand so that the indian mind can observe the changes that are taking place and know how to handle it you know if you look at china versus india many people say why china why not india i try to answer it in an article which i recently wrote why china why not india this is a beautiful article written by uh Forbes magazine which compared the three gorges dam in china with the narmada dam in india i'll read out what it is the three gorges dam flooded 13 cities 140 towns 1350 villages and displaced 1.2 million people but china completed it in a decade in contrast the narmada dam flooded no city inundated no town no town impacted far less villages just 178 and displaced less than 1/10th of the people the chinese dam displaced but how long did india take to complete the narmada dam 48 years jawarlal nehru laid the foundation for it in 1961 the world bank agreed to fund it in 1965 but went back after the narmada bachao andolan began its agitation The NBA moved the Supreme Court which stayed the construction in 1995. In 1999, the court lifted the stay, limited the dam height to 88 meters. Then, over 19 years, it raised the height in five painful installments: in 2000, 90 meters; in 2002, 95 meters; in 2014, 110 meters; in 2006, 122 meters; in 2019, 139 meters. It's full capacity. If democratic India. took five times more the time that china took to build the largest dam in the world why will not china fly and india only grow but it misses the most important point it is not india's democracy that is the problem alone the problem 
we had four elections seven prime ministers in 10 years when you had one government and three leaders and you don't know which prime minister will last for how many days how many months the world had to choose between india and china particularly the west even more particularly america and their choice was a bad choice it was a businessman's choice it was a financial institution's choice it was the choice of political miscalculation which has made the west the ladder for china to be where it is today as the biggest danger of not only the west but also for us so now in this background we china had a very strange combination of marxian politics and market economics we had a strange mix of marxian economics and democratic politics you know this was not even been discussed in india indian human rights issues will be highlighted by our media nobody will talk about chinese human rights issues still say you know china is progressing better than us and there is a huge chinese lobby in india in media in the administration in all policy making mechanism so these are all the issues china's rise many people think is just trade economics geopolitics military it is civilizational that's what i am going to tell you china is no paradigm shifting the world i am going to read out what what uh, deng xiao ping uh, ping spoke about china and its rise in the world you know chinese have no respect for the past they hate the past they say history is only moving forward there is no question of turning back and so much so confucian china was hated by communist china and they demolished all his statues burnt all his books carried on a cultural revolution called him a person who is responsible for the downfall of china he, they called his thoughts even semi barbaric you know how many neo confucian centers china runs today 572 neo confucian centers in almost all american universities and think tanks they have their chair neo confucian chair completely in 2005 they began shifting and now communist china has become confucian china and now i will tell you what deng xiaoping xi uh, jinping in the 100th anniversary of the party 10 million people he addresses them historical and cultural heritage not only vividly tells the past but also profoundly affects the present and future there is no communism it belongs not only to us but also to future generations having gone through over 5000 years of vicissitudes the chinese civilization has always kept its original roots 
If the Indian Prime Minister talks like this, he will be called a backward-looking man, communal, xenophobic. The man, in one speech, he has destroyed the very idea of communal about history, about civilization, about culture, about values. Is it as if communism did not exist at all? As a symbol. as a symbol of china's chinese nation's unique spirit it provides the nation with abundant nourishment to grow and prosper has there been any article written in india that china is now looking to civilizational moorings civilizational roots civilizational inspiration not only for the present but also for the future and saying for 5000 years this has been our intellectual moral physical cultural resource completely turned but the west has a problem the west has regarded its past as dark i don't think any group of countries declared their pastors black dark and they said only from enlightenment onwards we are good human beings but only in the enlightened world they produced hitler and they produced two world wars there was nothing enlightened about it it was just an anti christian movement that's all if you look at the entire western history of enlightenment it is how to keep the church away the same aggressiveness the same dominating spirit the same world conquering spirit the same colonizing idea that continued only thing was that we are no modern and that is dark age and they said everybody is age past is dark your past is dark wherever they went they said your past is dark because they are justified in saying your past is dark because they have they declared their own past as dark and in the process they said there is only the modern world has only one source of modernity and that is in enlightenment you know this has been thoroughly demolished by their own intellectualism i am going to cite it to you nothing will happen there are multiple modernities every country is becoming modern in its own way japan is becoming modern through nihon jinran Japaneseness. China is becoming modern through neo-Confucianism. Now it has been accepted that these multiple modernities have made each country modern in its own way. There is no one source of modernity, so that Western modernity is the modernity that is gone now. in fact based on this one size fits all model of economic development was advocated and that model said you have to give up your philosophy you have to develop in 1951 the united nations issued an advisory to all underdeveloped nations if you want to develop gentlemen you have to give up your philosophy you have to give up your values life you have to give up your social values you have to give up your relationships you have to become a contract based society 
from a relation based society unless you become a contract based society you can never develop was the idea that the united nations began forcing and implementing our education system our public discourse our media everybody caught on to this paradigm today a father scolding a child is not the responsibility of the father it is child abuse can you understand how those values have been interpreted and imposed on us you know my neighbors have slapped me and corrected me in my village when i look at them they were my teachers they were my mentors they were my guardians but today a teacher can't correct a child we have transformed all relationships into contracts jobs transactional this is the difference between modernism and civilization we are a civilizational nation we are and the entire asia is civilization i am going to tell you it is not just because it's a model of life but it reflects in politics you will be stunned to know how civilizational democracies are faring civilizational democracies mean democracies where there is relationship between the people independent of the constitution independent of law it is a normative society we are living in a normative society and i can tell you what is the economic consequence of it is in america today no son will take care of the father no father will educate his son in fact when i went to university of california los angeles i talked to the management students there and i asked them how many of you are being supported by your parents in your education out of 300 not even 2 3 lifted their hand the same question i addressed in iit madras management institute how many of you are being supported by your family for your higher education and the entire audience lifted its hand this is the difference between civilizational nation and a contract based modern nation this is real i am not talking about theory it's a functioning reality 55% of the first marriages end in divorce if you wanted to marry a second time 70 67% of the second marriages end in divorce if you have some desire left i am talking about men and men and women 73% of the third marriages end in divorce this is what psychology psychology today magazine shows and you know what is these are all not just cultural you know what is the economic consequence of it? the universal social security is a product of destruction of relationships in fact in 1983 i want all of you to download this paper and read us economy in transition eight economists including maybe even 11 including milton friedman who got the nobel prize in 1974 he said don't interfere in the filial responsibility of the child to the parent or parent to the child because we have already handed over to the kitchen to the multinationals in no american family you can see a kitchen no cooking he said if cooking and caring for children or caring for each other are two important functions of the family you have already destroyed one don't destroy the other don't bring universal social security this is happening in 1983 universal social security has come today because you have to pay a social security tax for your father to be taken care of 
or your children to be educated or your unhealthy people in the family to be taken care of you have no responsibility you know what is the cost of this the unfunded social security obligations of america today is 68 trillion dollars america has this obligation already incurred against which it doesn't have even 1 dollar but in india if all indians become like americans you know what will happen 60% of the people of india will be standing before narendra modi's house for two square meals a day can india run democracy run whether there can be anything called indian economy this is the civilizational drive in india and this has political not only economic consequence and i will tell you the entire structure of the liberal democracies is collapsing today i am not saying it it is the freedom house which is saying it what is happening to the liberal democracies i am going to tell you you will not sleep in the night voters turn out in 1950s in free democracies it was 76% in 2010 65% us 63% to 49% in oceania 95% to 70% in european union 85% to 70% and in the post communist uh, central europe and east european countries 85% to 60% you know most of them want to turn away from democracy this is called sliding back and even more important people youths less than 25 do not vote 40 35% do not vote at all and only 43% vote 57% of the people do not want to they, they have no interest in public affairs 54% feel they are too busy for public affairs can you run a democracy so democratic paradigm is vanishing act many citizens do not see politics as central to their identity due to many social and economic interests is the study civilization you know what has happened they have given so much rights i will read out that part because it has to be read otherwise one cannot understand what it means majority of the people the findings majority of the people are too busy for political involvement and due to many social and economic interests politics is not central to their identity you know what is it is because of liberalism individualism you are not even responsible for your family why should you be responsible to some prime minister some parliament there are so much to enjoy see what the author says the author finally concludes i believe the heterogeneity argument the heterogeneity argument is you allow people not to be you know you have to leave i leave people to live as they are if somebody doesn't want to dress allow them not to dress this is heterogeneity argument this is a new sociology in its extreme form can lead to neoliberal idea of the primacy of the individuals and prioritization of individual liberties this is because individuals are unique and have different wishes desires and needs 
you cannot harmonize them you cannot homogenize them you cannot bring it together you cannot integrate it if there are 130 crore indians there are 130 crore indias this is the idea since 1980s the rise of thatcher and reagan please understand this this has to do with your economics with the rise of thatcher and reagan politically the individual has been held at the heart of the society and with the radical roll back of the state with laissez-faire economic policies leading to deregulation of market privatization radical tax cuts citizens have been encouraged to become more self sufficient and self interested you automate the society the fellow is not even responsible to anybody you are answerable to your neighbor i remember uh an incident in 1993 or 94 one of my business friends clients actually is a friend also he had an appointment with the state bank of india to discuss some settlement it's about 200 300 crores worth project when he was he was driving out to go to the airport because in those days you could drive and park the car in the airport and bring it back in the evening that facility was available and when he was driving out the neighbor's wife and came and shouted my husband has chest pain he has to be taken to the hospital he just went into the neighbor's house put him in the and took him to the hospital his bank appointment went up in spoke seven years the man suffered in fact i asked him once hey what do you think about this guru if only i had gone for a bank appointment something had happened to this man i would never have had peace in my life this is your relationship even with the neighbor this is not the relationship between an american father and son american brother and brother american husband and wife why i am mentioning this is that these social impulses produce economic results so too much of freedom has undermined the liberal democracies themselves you know what is the strength of liberal democracies 13% of the world they will say you are illiberal democracy now these fellows have come together to say no 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 we are india or one we are 2.2 billion people who is saying this g7 because now china has come they say no 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 we are india or one till day before yesterday you were abusing as a illiberal democracy our own newspapers were writing it india is illiberal because if a teacher beats the student and you say you, this is right the student should be beaten by the teacher to be corrected you are illiberal this is how liberalism has been interpreted in the world so the result was in america the advent of trumpism trumpism was a movement it changed america once and for all in fact i wrote in the second year of trump's rule trump may go but trumpism will last forever now trumpism has not only become an american security or economic or trade or strategic policy it has become the policy of the european union itself g7 has accepted nato has accepted trump was a very poor articulator of his own policies the man failed to say what he stood for and what he did actually undid him so it is now the trump political doctrine which has become the doctrine of 
the entire west today vis-a-vis china because he identified china as the adversary of america and all these people said no no you are calling it is he is the greatest they are our greatest friends they are we are so intermingled we are integrated in technology in this in that if trump had not spoken about the 5g technology of america and banned huawei what would have happened to the world today now you are following trump trumpism has left united states completely divided between liberal and civilizational us civilizational us is that which feels that there is a higher us and wokeism is the opposite of it and the two fundamental the most important point i want to make is that the two fundamental premises of the post cold war world which is called the globalized world is that liberal democracy and free market mechanism have won once and for all and it constitutes the victory of the west over the rest forever the west has won forever this is how huntington's idea of civilizational clashes huntington was a poor representative of civilization just as trump was a poor representative of trumpism trump also promoted conflicts and huntington also promoted conflicts when huntington was buried in 1994 95 definitely by 1997 america was shaken by 911 and america was shaken economically in 2008 it does not recover still if anybody think that america has recovered as an economy they have very little knowledge of financial economics just printing money is no solution america is printing money and there is no alternative all countries have purchased that printed money including china which has 2.2 billion dollars of american money in its pockets it doesn't know what to do with it 1.2 billion dollar china has invested we have invested about 350 billion dollars the world has been co-opted by america into the dollar mechanism so we are all praying for america's welfare this is how long will this be sustained in a divided world in a world which is integrated with america at the top exercising power as the world in fact one uh, 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 two harvard economists said in the year 2006 how america is beating economic theories you know in economic theory if you keep on uh, incurring trade deficit current account deficit your currency will have to depreciate and then that will reverse your imports will increase and exports will fall and so your uh, currency value will get adjusted but America has been running current current account deficit from 1976 and they have incurred current account deficit till today except two years in Clinton's period they were always incurring uh, current account deficit and the current account deficit incurred by them is in excess of 13.5 trillion dollars that is the extent of dollar that America has printed in 1989 the economist magazine even wrote the most profitable export oriented industry of America is printing dollars so this mechanism is now being challenged and the challenge is not coming as a political challenge it is also coming as a in my view a civilizational challenge because the two things we have to understand 
is to compare the indian democracy with american democracy very telling comparison these guys talk about india being a an illiberal democracy you know i will tell you what it is this is a research done by one man whom the secularists and liberals will not refuse to accept and his name is i'll tell you his name high income group voters in america high income group voters in india and low income group voters in terms of voters of high and low income level participation while 36% of the lowest quintile voters vote in the us 57% of them vote in india 57% of the next quintile votes in the us 65% vote in india 59% of the next quintile vote in the US, 60% vote in India. Only uh, uh, 63% of the highest quintile votes in America, only 47% of them vote in India. The poor people vote in India more. You go to the next. In terms of education, while 38% of the no school, high school children vote in the US, 57% of the illiterates vote in india 43% of the high some high school schooled us voters vote 83% up to the middle school indians vote 57% of the high school graduates and 67 66% of some college graduates 79% of the college graduates vote in the us 57% of the college graduates only vote in india 84% of the post graduates vote in india 41% of the post graduates only vote in india uh, 84% in the us and 41% in india now take the caste 56% of the whites vote in contrast 50% of the blacks vote and only 27% of the latinos vote 60% of the upper caste hindus vote 58% of the obcs vote 75% of the scheduled caste 59% of the scheduled tribe, 70% of the Muslims vote in India. Very strong bottom spread economy. This they will call as illiberal democracy. Your democracy is failing. Your youths are not voting. Your minorities are not voting. Your poor are not voting. Is this the discourse in India? In India we vote as caste. We vote as villages. Entire village votes. As a family, we all sit together and see which party we will vote. This is civilizational democracy. We share everything including votes, including parties. This is supposed to be illiberal. Only if you destroy all this, it will be liberalism. This civilizational democracy is strong because the study shows in Asia, as compared to 1960, the voting percentage has risen to 70 there is an upside down we we only want a, an elected government which will be efficient which will work in the interest of the country whether somebody is free in his own house or not that is not the test of democracy today in the west the test of democracy is whether a child is free in his own family whether whether some indian lady fed the child with the, with her hand in sweden she was arrested 
how can you feed the child with your own hand i mean can you believe this kind of thing becoming the model of course you live like that we have no objection but we have our civilization we have our value systems we have our way of mothering children neighboring people this is what is rising in india in the world asia's rise is rise of relationship based politics it has its own problems i am not saying there is no problem but if we are managing this problem so much so the brookings institution came out with a paper in 2019 january all the liberal democracies are shaken up there is backsliding of uh, the democracies in the western uh, uh, central and eastern europe india is the silver lining and golden lining of democracy in the world has any indian newspaper referred to this first why india is silver lining and golden lining of democracy you know i can tell you we can live without a government i will give you proof we have 668000 towns and villages you are a very well informed audience please tell me how many police stations we have we have just 12800 police stations you go to the nationmaster.com and download what is the crime levels in india as compared to the western countries how many people are in jail in india murder is some charge which can never be hidden india is the country with the lowest murder rate in the world lowest rape rate in the world lowest decoity in the world policing does not reduce crime court does not reduce crime law doesn't reduce crime to the value systems which reduce crime so if india loses these civilizational virtues do you mean to say your courts are going to do it? somebody said uh, domestic violence act is a big victory for women you have handed over whether the husband or wife husband has done anything wrong or not to a corrupt inspector to decide do you mean to say he is going to do justice to women and this law is hailed as a great uh, advancement of women's rights how carbon copying of the ecosystem in the west to an unsuitable inappropriate culturally different ecosystem we have our problems i'm not saying every society has problem which society doesn't have a problem american problem can never be resolved you know robert epstein you can go and see he has made a study how to make the american marriages work he said the only way is they should follow indian marriage system but it is not possible to restore relationships here because in india a boy or a girl is chosen by the entire family this has its own impact in politics in sociology so this civilizational paradigm has suddenly gained momentum in the post covid world this is the most important thing i want to emphasize and western liberal democracy and indian civilizational democracy both have to work together if autocracy has to be resisted you cannot be any more certifying whether i am liberal or not whether i am following human rights or not without me 
you cannot fight china this is the uspf india this is strategic position which we have gained but the roots of indian democracy or civilization the very institution which uh, used to abuses this freedom house you know what they say i will tell you the freedom house in its report world annual survey of political and civil liberties in 1999-2000 the annual survey continued to reveal interesting patterns in the relationship between cultures and political development it said within while there are broad differences within civilizations while democracy and human rights find expression in a wide array of cultures and beliefs the survey shows some important variations in the relationship between religious belief or tradition and political freedom the survey found that as of to 1999 2000 there is a strong correlation between electoral democracy and hinduism and there is a significant number of free countries among traditionally buddhist societies and those in which the buddhism is widespread like japan mongolia taiwan and thailand this is civilization if india has 90% muslims do you mean to say there will be democracy in this country let's be clear there is a civilizational drive you cannot atomize india into 130 crore indians they will have relationships we need a very courageous intellectualism in india to comprehend this to articulate this to speak the truth are we capable of producing such in, in, uh, individuals intellectuals institutions that is the test we are going to be one of the major influencers of the course of events in the world and it goes on to say how there are world bank researches on ramya parsarji has put is a beautiful paper as to how a democratic spirit is in here inherent in india because we can keep on talking without exchanging blows one of my friends used to say how don't know how in the south people you keep on abusing each other but you don't exchange one blow i said that is our democracy <laughs> in fact amartya sen calls it the argumentative india many people do not even know how amartya sen won his nobel prize he won the nobel prize by comparing india and china the great china famine of 1957 to 1960 in 3 years 35 million people died of hunger the news came out only in 1978 when deng xiaoping disclosed it to the world he compared it with india if there is one kalahandi death in hunger the parliament will stop food will be airlifted that is why market works in india this was his theory on which he was given nobel prize but the same man will abuse india <laughs> and say china is growing why will it not grow if you are constructing a dam in 48 years and they do it in 10 years they will fly you will only grow so i my appeal to you is we have to think afresh you know my maharishi arbindo had come to india in 19 uh, come to pondicherry in 1909 he was a great intellectual foreign educator revolutionary movement everybody was looking to him for guidance he was looking to one madman called kolachoni about whom subramanya bharti has written poems 
He was a madman. He was a mystic. He used to throw stones. He used to laugh. Aravindo said, this man is going to show me the way. Everybody thought Aravindo has lost all his senses. So Aravindo was sitting at the back of his house and having a cup of tea. So Ulajami came and lifted the teacup in front of Aravindo and showed it was full. He emptied it and showed it to him. Left the teacup and went away. Aravindo said, I have got my message. <laughs> his friend said, you lost your tea. Please tell us what is the message you got. He said, he has asked me to empty my thoughts and begin thinking afresh. This is my appeal to all Indian intellectuals. Media. Thank you, uh, Mr. Gurumurthy. I think it was spellbound. All of us were spellbound by your speech today. Thank you so much for enlightening us. We just have time for maybe one or two questions. And uh, maybe one, if there's any lady in the audience who wants to ask a question, we will uh, go with that first. Yes, uh, um, I'll give you this mic. And you please hold on, sir. Yeah, there's one lady out there. Maybe we'll just take two questions. Please keep the questions brief so that we can have uh, more chance. Uh, name is Sir, uh, I, uh, what you made is an excellent point that impersonal thought underlying economics will lead to breakdown of the society itself. And that is true even in science. Even in science, the, uh, the world has come to global economic, uh, environmental climate crisis because what underlines science, they think is objectivity by impersonal thought. On the contrary, the life is run by people. And you cannot impersonalize the world, be it in economics, be it in science. And uh, in Bhagavad Gita, it clearly tells you that for every individual, I give the phenomenal world every moment. So if you, imp if you impersonalize anything, it breaks down. So you need personalized system, which is your civilization system, which is available in the social context. Similar thing is needed even in science. That's the way India can make a progress in the area of science. And that's possible. I think, I think. Sir, would you like to respond something? Right. Sir, uh, there is no question. You yeah, that's, made a comment. Yeah, yeah, I do. See, actually, today, uh, there, is, there is a vast body of, for example, for example, in 2015, if you remember right, I read an article uh, in the Hindu about what the science magazine spoke about uh, surgical interventions. Surgical intervention should not be allowed except in an emergency. Now you are using surgical 
interventions just like that. Hundred years of uh, medical hypo hypothesis was completely changed in that one article. So what I am saying is, this is there is a huge review that is taking place. One, no, no, no. Now, uh, I am not an expert, but I have heard experts like Dr. B. M. Hegde, who said Mahatma Gandhi's BP was never less than 190 ever. That was his normal. Just as everybody, you cannot measure everybody's height as 5.6. You cannot measure everybody's sugar as this, BP as this. He said this idiotic. Each body has its own. There is, everybody is custom built. That's why Ayurveda says you cannot prescribe medicines for all. You know, these are all different, uh, uh, different approaches. So it is very difficult to tackle it in the, because the context of today is a civilizational paradigm. Please go ahead, ma'am. Thank you. Um, sir, it was awe-inspiring to listen. And for people like us who are thought leaders, we are very inspired that because we are going to influence someone because of the way we listen to you. My question comes as a learning and development professional. We're looking at uh, any development in human being is because of their thinking process being cleared and so they move on. That's how the evolution has happened. Now I would like to know, sir, how can you relate, uh, uh, not how, it is I would like you to throw an idea of consciousness increasing and bringing civilization uh, paradigm. The role of conscious living with I understand your question. Thank you so much, sir. See, one of the biggest problems of the contemporary world is the short-termism. As a chartered accountant, as a, somebody who knows business, we used to measure what will happen to the business in the next 10 years, a decadal view. Then it becomes balance sheet view every year. Then it became quarterly. Then, now it is overnight interest rate that is disturbing the nations and the finance ministers and the reserve bank. How can a country which has to plan for be disturbed about overnight interest? Once your vision gets so short as this. Because of that there is no great improvement. I think Indira Nui met Trump and told him, dispense with these quarterly results. It's a disaster. By quarterly result, you have not avoided fraud, you have promoted it. In fact, the biggest example is that uh, uh, Lehman Brothers. I still remember the statement, the worst is behind us, the man said in June. You know what happened in October. You see, ultimately, you have got to live with the fact that you have got to live for 60, 70 years and what is the basis for that. And you are making money every day in the market and whether it will go up and somebody is trying to put it up, some rumors are floated in the newspaper, some shares come down. You know, if this is the economics that is going to come, how do you hope to develop a civilizational paradigm? What is the difference between America and China? Is the long-termism of America, China, and the short-termism of America. This is the problem. On which I have done some research also. So civilizational paradigm looks at the next generation. I don't think there is any democratic government which can look beyond the next elections. <laughs> so it is the responsibility of 
intellectuals, the media, thinkers, to set the goal that this is how we should be. But if we are also part of these little, little issues and take position, ideological positions, even the media is only playing into the hands of the politicians who are short-termist in their approach. Hello, sir. Today afternoon, I was seeing YouTube, sir. How Israel, there is one concept called kibbutz. And it is not new to India. We call it as, you know, Vazdaiva Kutumukam. It is already there and they are implementing it. That means irrespective of that all religions, particularly Jews, including Palestinians, then Muslims, Christians together, villages are formed and how neatly they are developing. And we talk about Vazdaiva Kutumukam, Sanatan Dharma and all these things. When we are going to usher in and bring it and make the people together irrespective of cast among Indians. Sir, actually I tell you, I am from a village. Till 1960s, we had never have caste differences in the village. Untouchability was a problem. There was no caste as a problem. There was no caste clashes. Now every caste, you see, in fact I made a study of uh, how, what trade and economics does to a caste. There are three castes, which is the Nadars. I'm mentioning it because it is part of my study. Nadars, Congo Gounders, and Naidus. All these three communities took to business. They have grown in every sense of the term, including education and everything. Three communities, they took to politics. Tevers, Vanyas, and Dalits. They have remained stationary. Because they think government will develop them. The three communities stood on their own feet. They have no clash with anyone because a businessman always wants good relationship with others. A politician always wants to divide his group of people and get them as voters. So politics, caste in politics is dangerous. Caste in economics is development. This is my theory. I have studied it in Ramgadia community with Patels all over the country. So you must see how you can use your relationship. If you use it in politics, it is divisive. If you use it in business, it is constructive. Where is the Indian thinking in this? The caste as social capital is a new thought which has developed today. Because of the last 25, 30 years of the teamwork which we did. So it's, that's why I said we need a completely new way of looking at India. I think... Thank you, sir. I don't want to <laughs> detain others also because some people want to ask questions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, sir, for taking your time off this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, time for us to honor the guest speakers uh, this evening. Uh, may I request uh, Mr. Sudhar Swami, uh, Mr. Srinivasan K. Swami, uh, Mr. Srika Swami, uh, and also uh, Mr. Subarao, uh, President of MMA, to give away the mementos uh, to the guest speakers of the day. Uh, starting from uh, Mr. Gurumurthy. Uh, thank you, Mr. Gurumurthy, for, uh, <clears throat> for that excellent uh, presentation and uh, the address that you made. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Uh, now, uh, request Mr. Murli to accept a, a memento uh, from us. Thank you so much, sir, for sparing your...
for sharing your personal insights uh, into the life of uh, Mr. Swami and uh, Mr. Rajan as well. Thank you so much sir, for sharing your relationship with Mr. Swami. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this brings us to the end of this uh, presentation of Momentos. May I now request uh, Mr. Paul Antony, uh, President Advertising Club of Chennai, to come and uh, propose the formal word of thanks. A very good evening to everybody. It was a wonderful speech by Mr. Kurumurthy who had uh, given us on the subject and the wealth of knowledge. At the outset, I would like to express our sincere gratitude to Mr. Gurumuthi for accepting this invite and delivering a wonderful lecture this evening on the third memorial R.K. Swami lecture and enlightening us with some wonderful insights. Thank you, sir, very much for this beautiful evening. I would like to thank Mr. N. Murli and Ms. R. V. Rajan who have engaged with R. K. Swami in various professional capacities and sharing some of their lively experiences about the person and the professional he was. An event like this, a sustained effort and persistence on behalf of the Ad Club Madras, I express my gratitude to the group captain, Mr. Vijay Kumar, Mr. Subarav, Mr. Srinivasan Swami, who has uh, consistently made sure that every year this prestigious event takes place, whatever be the challenges are. I would like to thank the Hindu group, uh, media partner, and medianewsforyou.com, our online media partner, for partnering with us from day one, and I would like to have their continued support. Thank you all for coming this evening in this extraordinary times, and look forward for hosting the future editions of this lecture series. Stay safe. Good evening to everybody. Thank you.